giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the giant robots smashing in to other giant robots podcast. It is November 1st. I'm Ben Ornstein, and we are here at RubyConf 2012. Very exciting. Uh, Recorded a bunch of podcasts and send them out to you, dripping them out over time. Uh, right now, I'm sitting down with Joe Ferris, a repeat guest, and also uh, Jim Gay. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. No welcome for you, Joe. <laughs> You're old news. You got the short end of the stick. Yeah, Jim, you're, you're new, so you get you get the fancy question. You get the uh, the welcome. So uh, how's it going, Jim? Uh, it's good. This is my first RubyConf. Uh, really? Uh, not my first uh, conference, but sure. uh, I keep getting into groups of people where everyone is like counting the number of conferences that they've gone to. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't really kept track. Yeah. Okay. I had a spike this year, which just went off the charts. So wow! Yeah, how many have you been to, Ben? <laughs> I don't want to say on the air. <laughs> Your mother okay. might be listening. That's right. Exactly. My girlfriend thinks I'm going to, you know, work things. So I don't want her to. Um, so Jim, you're in the process of writing a book. I am an ebook, electronic book. It is. It is all uh, electronic. Cl- yeah, called Clean Ruby, mm-hmm. and it is about DCI. Yes, mostly. Mostly. Is that a fair characterization? Mostly, yeah. So uh, when I started um, thinking about writing the book, it wasn't necessarily like, I'm going to write a book about DCI. It was that I'd been on big projects where the code base grew difficult to understand and the spreading of knowledge among the different developers was difficult. And um, so I thought, you know, other developers could probably learn from the experience. And, and at the time, I was doing a lot of research on DCI, and it just it fit perfectly for the kinds of problems that we were solving. So mm-hmm. it kind of got wrapped up into it. So it's sort of become the DCI and Ruby book, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I talk about other general good coding practices in it as well. Okay. C- could you summarize sort of uh, the ideas behind DCI? Quickly? Sure. Um, <clears throat> it stands for data context and interaction. And essentially what that means is you, your, um, your data objects are just like the entities, the things that are in your world. Right. Um, and uh, only in a given context do they ever need to perform some sort of interaction, right? So that's where the term comes from. But, uh, like, for example, when you're authenticating or, like, you're building a social network and you have a user making f- friends with someone else, um, usually when we, when we code up the user class, we kind of put all that stuff in the user class and it just sits there and, and you never use it until the controller, you know, grabs it and calls that method on it. But DCI says, you know, really this is a particular business process that you only ever need to have happen when that happens. So your user object shouldn't be carrying around all this ability to do these different things when you don't actually need it. Hmm. So. So, so Joe and I were talking about this earlier, and one of the things, uh, the questions that we had is this, it seems like that idea right there seems to go against some of a sort of traditional OO idea of that behavior belongs with its data. Why, uh, why so? Like, what, what, I'm curious why it sounds like it goes against it, because the, the argument within the DCI community is that this is OO. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I think in particular the, the data part of things, where you have these objects that only understand base data, right, would be classified by Martin Fowler as DTOs, which he's, you know, he's been saying that's an anti-pattern forever. DTOs being? Data transfer objects. And it's just like a, a dumb data holder. Right. Or uh, like Robert Martin calls them structs sometimes. And I've like, it's hard to make a concrete rule like that, but I have generally found that when I have objects that have just data and I don't, you know, put behavior on them, I end up with some smells in the code, like parallel hierarchies, duplication, things like that. Um, 
So it's not that the data objects never have that behavior. They actually do become the full objects that you think about where you're tying the behavior in with it because um, DCI is designed to uh, have your code reflect the runtime operation of the system, right? Um, so when you look at the code, it should show you what's happening with these objects interacting. So in Ruby, you know, you initialize the context and you pass in the data objects. They're, they're basically called the role players, right? They, they, they gain some role within this, this uh, algorithm, and um, all the abilities are in that role. So if you extend an object with a module, it now all of a sudden has all that stuff. So that object is still performing all those actions, but um, the code is written in a way that those um, abilities are only relevant to that context. So mm-hmm. um, you can look at a large system and look at all the different contexts and understand the use cases rather than a typical Rails application where things are buried in, you know, like callbacks or uh, your controller just hooks into a model and, and the model just has absolutely everything it will ever need for the entire execution of the system rather than just the, that particular use case. Mm-hmm. So it's, 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 it's a way of looking at um, those objects only gaining the abilities that they need when they need them. So it's not so much that they're dumb data objects and they always remain that way and you pass them into functions or something like that. They actually get their abilities um, for the time that they need them. Um, and so that, you know, like if you're working, Joe, on, on a, a feature for, you know, your client and <clears throat> I don't need to know anything about it, I'm working on something totally different. I shouldn't have to dive through all of your code in that user class or whatever class it is to figure out you know, like how I understand my process. I should be able to look at, like, these are all the things that I need for this to be done, mm-hmm. and you shouldn't be bothered with all the stuff that I need. You know, So we can sort of test the business process in isolation rather than testing like the entire class of what can a user do at any given point during the system operation. So, so that feels... I hear what you're saying. It feels a little bit like a possibly a straw man argument, though, because so it's it's like it's not the the choices are between uh, mixing your behavior on the fly or shove it all in one class, right? Like there are other ways. So with within OO, I might do something like you're you're saying. You know, you don't you don't want to have every method that a user might ever need inside a user class. Sure. So one thing I might do is have classes that compose a user, that take a user, and then contain the behavior that they need for that. Yeah, you definitely can do that. And and the thing about DCI is it, is it's supposed to describe the system operation, right? And so often when we do that, we hide all these bits and pieces around in different places. So you might call a method that composes something, but the way that's structured isn't done in a, in a way that you can see it in terms of the actual use case. Um, so you might, um, uh, you know, like if you're making a subscription, you might make a separate subscription object that handles the interaction of the, the user and whatnot. But um, you kind of only have that happen for that one procedure, and, and you lose a view of it or if your controller is the place where it composes it, you have to understand that um, that the controller is the place where that happens rather than looking at the terms of, like, your use case has a success scenario, alternate you know, outcomes, failure scenarios, and that the argument is that that whole thing should be in a place where you can understand the operations. Mm-hmm. One thing we've talked about before on the podcast is... Um the idea of the two principles, tell, don't, ask, and the single responsibility principle being like fundamentally at odds with each other. That basically every time you extract a concern from an object, like if you don't put everything on the user class, then you can no longer give it such simple commands because the command is now an interaction between two objects, right? And so they're sort of opposed. Um, 
And I've generally found that depending on how the application evolves, it's better to like focus on one or the other and trying to like do both of them at once. You end up in like an arm wrestling match with yourself. Um, and it seems to me like, you know, having never tried any DCI, so we're speculating here, but it seems to me like DCI is a really interesting way to follow the single responsibility principle and that, you know, you pull all these uh, concerns into like use cases and the role modules. But it seems like it'd be pretty much impossible to ever follow tell, don't ask. Since, you know, fundamentally, it's always a conversation between at least three things, right? Like the role, the use case, and the, uh, the actual data object. Yeah, but I don't think that, I mean, I don't think it restricts you from using tell, don't ask. You know, you could still, like, for example, if you're implementing a context where, you know, some algorithm has to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to query your objects in, inside there and ask them questions about what they have. You can still just tell them to do something. And then the role um, methods that they receive is where that implementation is. So, uh, like, in a context for um, for a subscription or, or whatever it is, you can tell an object to do something, but it can only do that in that context. Mm-hmm. So it's not... I, I don't think it's, it's so much that it can't... Like, you can't use that... Um, it's just that you can't use that same method outside of that context. Right. I guess it's like, it depends on how you think of the, the objects with the mix-ins, right? So if you think of the, like the, a user with a subscriber role as one object and it's just a single thing with no collaborators, it sort of makes sense. But I tend to think of, even with inheritance, I think of the contract between like the object that's inheriting something and the actual superclass. And mm-hmm. so like mix-ins, even at runtime, are a way of doing multiple inheritance, right? And so if you think of it as a separate contact uh, contract, like an interaction between the mixin and the data object, then it's sort of like, you know, the, the mixin is querying the data object. They're not the same thing, right? Uh, I suppose, but I mean, that data object is, you know, has the same methods that it would if it were just defined, you know, uh, in, mm-hmm. in a class that represented it. If, if I yeah. understand correctly, and I'm not too distracted by the noise in the background. <laughs> No, I guess the what's important to me is like um, the fact that the data objects have to expose this data to all the mixins that use them means that it's not fully encapsulated, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you have objects that hide their uh, data behind behavior, then it's encapsulated within that one class. Like you know that nothing that ever uses that is interacting with that data, and so you're following whatever contract you set up externally. Whereas if you're constantly extending at runtime and everything has access to the private data by intention, which is not necessarily a bad thing, it, it does mean that you you constantly have that um, that dialogue going on, right? I think so. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to talk about this type of stuff without, like, looking at code. Right, or, yeah, like, I mean, it's really you know, abstract. Yeah. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at is, have you found, since it, it seems to me, again, I've never done DCI and not having any code in front of me, it seems to me like it might push your application in a particular direction in terms of the principles you follow. And so I'm wondering, have you found it to be universally useful in like every application? You just like on day one, you're like, well, of course I'm making, you know, context and. Uh, um, I, I definitely start there. Uh, what I've found useful about it is, uh, you know, for example, the, the service classes are they can be useful as well. But if you um, like DCI is about 
modeling the end user's understanding of the system, right? Um, how, how they actually think about it. And so if you write your code in a way that is not about how programmers consider what should happen in the execution of it, if you think in terms of, like, what does the end user think is going on here? How can I best model what they think is happening in this application? Um, I start with the context because I don't really care about what data is there. I just sort of start describing how are these things interacting, like what's, what's going to happen. Um, I was actually just having a conversation with somebody else where um, I will start with uh, some pseudocode for a context. I, I won't start with a, um, a test because I want to just get it down and put it in a place where I can figure out and see what's, what's going to happen during the execution of it. So I may, I may go and remove that and then test drive it, or I may just test afterward. Um, but I think ultimately you want the execution, the, the running application to uh, be easy to understand. Like often when we, we have all these separate objects and different, different responsibilities completely separated out, you kind of lose an understanding of exactly how they come together. So you can look at your code base and see all the bits and pieces, um, but it's not really clear how they come together. And DCI sort of gives you that w way of thinking about it. Like put it. Put it in this context. This is describing a very particular thing. Um, and uh, so I, I'll start there. I'll, I'll, I'll think about, you know, what, do, what does the business owner want to happen here? Or what does the user um, really need this application to do? And I just sort of describe the different pieces of, of what's happening. And even just, um, like, this gets into why I think Clean Ruby is not just a DCI book, but even just thinking about the names that you use. Like, I've, I've gone down the road of using certain terminology um, and then if I stop and I think, well, what will the user, what do they think is happening here or what do they want to be happening? You just kind of change the words to what they might, ha you know, want. Um, it changes your perspective on how you, th you think the operation ought to go and it can, it can really help you clear up the, the code base. So, so you're saying it's sort of using more uh, domain language that's in the realm of the user's view of the world. Absolutely. And fewer words that are talking about things in your world. Yes, it sounds like sort of taking that um, principle that's been popular lately in Ruby of like outside-in development and just taking it a little further, right? Like people people do it a lot in tests now. Sometimes people only test outside-in. Right. And then taking that to the next step and doing it on the implementation side as well. And you know. Yeah, so if you think about um, the definition of OO, like I raised the question in the book about, you know, what is OO? And um, I when I had reviewers, you know, give me feedback on the book, everybody had, uh, like I, I said, you know, there's no real clear definition of OO. Um, and everybody claimed that there was, and they gave me a different answer for what was the real definition. So I kind of go into that a bit. Um, but if you think about um, Alan Kay designing it in terms of, uh, like, um, cells doing different things, um, you can look at it on a really high scale, like, our, our networks, you know, we have different hubs and the networks send messages to each other and then inside there we have computers that talk to each other and inside the computers we have programs that talk to each other. Um, so when you think about DCI, you can look at stuff like, I, I've been doing a lot of reading of Alistair Coburn. Uh, he's got a great book called Writing Effective Use Cases and he talks about the way you can uh, write a use case at a very high level that you know the user cares about. This is this is how the system works. But then there are different stakeholders who care about different things. And so you can write a, a context 
text that that describes that operation, but the actual you know saving of data or, or calculation of things, uh, someone in the development team has more concern over how that's going to run. You know, what kind of things are you going to do to make sure that that happens efficiently? A good example, and the canonical example that's always used in DCI is um, the uh, money transfer, right? I talk a bit about that in the book. You have, when you transfer money from one account to another, um, you don't have a source account in your in your bank and you don't have a destination account. You know, you have checking and you have savings and all that stuff. And, and during the context that use case of you using it and transferring money you they, they play different roles and they transfer money so that's that's a very high level view of what, what the user thinks about when they're using the system but on a lower level that account object isn't actually a record in a database with a value stored of how much money you have that you add and subtract it's a calculation of a bunch of different transactions um, over time so when you go to ask what the value is that itself is a lower-level context of what's happening. So, uh, you know, the account plays a role as just an account holder of data, but internally the structure of it can be that you have these collaborating transactions to determine the value of it. Mm -hmm. Does that approach of, um, you know, taking the implementation and designing it from a use case perspective, is that ever difficult in things that are, like, multi-step kind of things? So, like, for example, if you write an acceptance test, you can have multiple steps where it's like first I add something to my cart, then I increment the you know quantity, and then I check out without being signed in. And if you think of like the individual things people can do, like if it's a shopping cart program, as a user you'd say like, well I can buy something, but the actual workflow for that may be pretty involved, right? Like you sign up, then you add things to your cart, then you check out, then you choose payment. So like when you're designing the use case objects, how do you get the multi-step objects to relate to each other in a meaningful way? Um, I. It depends, and I think it ultimately comes down to your mental model of the system. So what does the user think about? Uh, is, it, what do they think is happening, and, and what do you think is happening? And so um, given any problem, you know, any set of developers could come up with different ideas of how something ought to, ought to happen. Uh, but you could do a high-level high level use case of, like, what happens on a grand scale when you're buying something so even taking the cart aspect out of it you know I, I have a cart and I check out and that could be you know a higher level one and then that context itself could initialize lower level context to describe the behavior of what happens when you try to add something to your cart and you know who knows maybe you you have a budget attached to your cart you try to add something and it gets kicked out you know that's that's a um, that's a very specific business case that you'd have to, you know, have the right mental model. Um, so there's, um, you know, there's any number of ways you could do it, but the benefit of putting it in terms of um, uh, a single place where you understand that entire use case, it's, it's just a lot easier to think about what's going to happen when it does run. So you could have multiple uh, um, contexts running the different steps if you need, or maybe there's just multiple methods that need to be called uh, by different, you know, actions. Um, oh, that's interesting. So it's it's not like a lot of the examples that you see from, uh, like the earlier examples from non-Ruby programmers. They would they would call like execute on a money transfer, right? So a lot of people saw that and they're like, oh, execute. Okay, so I need to use execute when I'm doing DCI, but you don't. And you'll see examples now like call is a good method to use because there's a lot of things in Ruby that respond to call, so you can always slap a lambda in there and have it operate the same way. Um, but 
your domain has language that you would actually use. The the user thinks about starting something and finishing it, or you know whatever those words are. Um, you may have those same number of steps, and you might have those same methods on the on the context itself. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. So one test for me of sort of new programming paradigms and ideas like this are their um, flexibility in the face of change. So it's, it's relatively easy to say, oh, this works I mean, the first time we wrote it, and for like the first three months, everything is great. Do you have, have, you, uh, do you have any like long-lived apps that, that you've used this approach on and that have res- responded well as you've changed them? I haven't, but the... the the two things that I do know uh, is that uh, it'll protect you from changes in your framework as long as you manage your dependencies properly. You know, uh, a lot of people will put put code into a controller, not thinking about what potentially could change with Rails controllers, and they rely on certain things. Uh, for example, strong parameters. You know, is is now everybody's going to have to go back and change the way they do parameter. You know, uh, <laughs> passing into their models, and that really is a business use case. Like if you think about the terms of what should be required on a form and what you can accept and can't accept, that's a business use case. And if you separate that out from your controller and have that in another area, then you'll be focusing on the business value rather than just saying, oh, we just accept any, any parameters that come in, which are, you know, is great for an active record uh, model in Rails 3 and 2 and all that. But um, you know, in Rails 4, that it's not going to accept that. Is a good thing, but it's still stuck in the controller layer, and you think about it in terms of the controller rather than your business use case. Um, so there's there's that. It can I think if you if you build your application based upon the business need first, and then put it into the framework, um, then uh, you're protected from changes in your framework, and you can change your framework if you decide to. Um, uh, but then also I was I was on a big project that. Uh, the benefit that I saw was uh, we had these God classes and, and massive, um, complicated state machines and difficult things to test. And when I started trying to understand DCI and play with context, I realized I had this sort of separate sandbox for myself to understand a, the operation of the system that didn't involve everything else. You know, I didn't really care about everything that happened, and I could look at it without all the other stuff and baggage that came along with, you know, whatever callbacks were, were in there. And, you know, if I didn't create things in the proper order, uh, you know, testing previously because we hadn't coded it properly, now I could just separate it completely. I didn't care about what was in classes. I didn't have to refactor the class to, to change anything. I just created the context. I had my modules that defined the behaviors in there. And then, um, you know, the role players came in and they did their thing. So... Uh, also, if you look at it in terms of that, you could have multiple different um, types of objects play a certain role. So maybe you have a a people cla- a person class and a user class and you know an admin class or something like that. And the context doesn't really care about those things. Like you're never going to check what the kind of object it is. Um, even if they all behave differently, if they can all do the same thing in a business use case, then looking at the use case, you don't really care what they are unless there's some special rule that you need to implement. So uh, so it seems like you kind of bumped into one of my other questions, um, which is whether or not you consider DCI as sort of an all-or-nothing approach. Um, I don't think so. Uh, Trigva Rienskog, um, who was one of the creators of it, um, uh, says, and which I think is a good point, um, anytime you have two or more objects collaborating, DCI is a candidate for the design. 
So you don't necessarily have to use it. There's lots of other ways to solve the problem. Um, I don't think it's all or nothing. And, I, you know, I tell people who are interested, uh, they're curious. You know, I, my team isn't on board with this. They don't want to try it. And I suggest, well, just try it for one small thing that you need to do. Um, it's really no different than, than saying I'm going to add another object that will handle this responsibility. You're going to add now an object that's going to handle collaboration of a couple different things. Um, so I don't think it's all or nothing. I don't really... Um, I've never heard an argument uh, that, you know, would, would say that it is. Yeah. H- have, you, have you been the only guy writing in this style on a project before with other people that are not using it? Um, I have, and... Uh, they receive it all right? Yeah, they receive it. They've received it fine. When I was first trying it out, I did it poorly, and uh, that was bad. <laughs> um, like, I, you know, I mixed inheritance with my context, so I had, like, a, a larger context and another one that inherited from it, and it just, it was awful. It was really difficult to understand, and, uh, you know, inheritance in general hides a lot of things. Sometimes that's good, and sometimes that's bad, uh, but when... My goal at the time implementing that was to put everything right in front of your face. Um, now I introduced this inheritance, and it was it was just a mess. So, hmm. so uh, you're the lead developer on, or one of the lead developers on Radiant. Yes, is that true. How do you like running that project? Um, I like it a lot. I wish I was working on it more. Um, I really enjoy it. Uh, I think there's a lot of cool things we can do with it. Um, but I keep finding other uh, other things that need my attention, so I haven't been able to do a lot of contributions to it. But yeah, yeah, it's been around for a little while, right? It is, uh, or it has. It's it's the oldest Rails CMS. Okay. There was Comatose before it, which was like a plugin, um, which I, I have no idea if it still exists or. So you're pretty mature, so maybe it doesn't need as much uh, love well, every day. Th- the problem is, um, it's still on Rails two. Which is great, and I used to like to say that it's on Rails 2, so it's fast, um, when Rails 3 was, was new. Um, but really, uh, we tried really hard to um, make sure that the upgrade path for people who were on, um, on existing installs was going to be easy, because mm-hmm. we, the, the system had changed so many times through the years, and people run into problems. And so the development team really wanted to make sure that uh, it would be easygoing, but in doing that and fixing bugs and implement, implementing features so that it would do that, we're still on Rails 2. You know, it was, it was fixed what was there. And it probably would have been a better decision to say, forget it. Let's, you know, move forward with all the Rails 3 stuff and, and you know, there'll be problems. We have a mailing list. We'll fix it then. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> have you used it? Uh, no, I haven't actually. Oh. I haven't tried it. <laughs> no. Yet. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know if you can get me to start up a new Rails 2 project. <laughs> So, um, any talks you're particularly looking forward to at RubyConf? Um, other than mine? Other than yours. The, yours is the reason I came here, actually. Oh, yeah. um, now, now that you're asking me, I cannot remember. Uh, but, you know, I, I The one about my, Ruby? The one, yes, I think wherever they're going to mention Ruby. No, I am actually interested in um, the details of uh, the Ruby 2.0 implementation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really curious about how Ruby could potentially change to make doing uh, things in, like, DCI easier. Because, uh, you know, you can extend an object, but you can't unextend it unless you hack the C code or JRuby or whatever you're going to do. Yeah. Um, 
so that that I'm really curious about. I'm I'm hoping there might be ways to fit other delegation possibilities into you know stuff beyond Ruby 2.0. Uh, mm-hmm. So cool. So if people wanted to get in touch with you, what's a good way to do that? Um, I'm on Twitter at Saturn Flyer. Um, my company site is SaturnFlyer.com, uh-huh. and uh, my book is at Clean-Ruby.com. Awesome. Well, Jim, thanks very much for coming by and uh, talking with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, take care.